We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Timeline. My name is Mike Hill. Sam Cooper, how are you doing? Good to talk about a win. Yeah, it's really nice. Uh, Mike, I'm doing great. So since we last recorded, after Booker's 59-point game, uh, Devin Booker had a 50-point game and a 3-point loss to Washington, a 48.11 assist game, and a 5-point loss to Memphis. And then tonight, we're recording this immediately after the Cleveland game, the Suns won a game for the first time since March 17th against New Orleans. And this is an interesting stat I just looked up. It's the first win without Kelly Oubre Jr. in the lineup since December 17th against the New York Knicks. (laughs) It's been a long time since the Suns won without, and and there's really no reason to expect any sort of win without uh, the guys that are playing tonight. Tonight, there was no Aiton, there was no Kelly Oubre Jr., there was no Tyler Johnson, there was no TJ Warren. Those are four of our five best players right there. But because of the gravity of Devin Booker after those insane scoring performances, the Suns got a lot of open shots tonight, and that ended up in a pretty impressive win, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, the Suns have been getting open shots throughout these games from Devin Booker, but tonight I just thought guys stepped up. Uh, I went into this game with absolutely no expectations of winning, even though it's the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, just because that's what we've been seeing for the past week or so. But Rashawn Holmes and Dragon Bender and Mikhail Bridges and Jamal Crawford and Josh Jackson, especially Josh Jackson, they all played well tonight. They hit their open shots, had energizing plays on defense. 
Uh, the Suns had 12 blocks tonight, which was pretty okay. crazy. They shot 35% from deep. Uh, obviously, that, that came down throughout the game after they shot an insane percentage in the first half. But it was just it was just some guys stepping up. And Josh Jackson, right when you think you're finally out on Josh Jackson, he reels you back in with a performance like this. <laughs> was this... Serious question. Was this his best game that he's ever played? Possibly. Quite possibly. I mean, and- he had that like 36-point game on good efficiency against the uh, Warriors towards the end of last season, but they still lost. I think they were competitive in that game, though. I'd have to go back and look it up. But just the fact that this game was a win, there were so many highlight real plays. He finally got that poster that you were so excited to post on Twitter, obviously. <laughs> uh, and then the stare-down block on Brandon Knight. 15 seconds later was just a perfect sequence. So I don't know. Josh was great tonight. It might be his best game ever. Yeah. And the reason I bring that up is because he had 19 points, 10 rebounds, four assists, but also insane five blocks and and one steal. So this is the type of game where he's really impressive athletically on both ends of the floor. And it's the type of game where you can, you can just see it. You can see it. You know, this is what we've been wanting from Josh Jackson. Every once in a while, he'll, he'll show flashes individually in games, uh, but he won't really put it all together. And tonight he put it all together. And it was really nice to see, especially coming off of that ankle injury. He's only played two games since that injury. And he was really impressive tonight. And, and you had an interesting tweet that you tweeted out earlier today about his shooting. It's just bizarre how good he's been quietly from the three-point line when it's considered a good shot. You know, he he does have to be open for it to go down, but when he's open, he seems to be knocking it down. Yeah, and to your point, after shooting two for three tonight, Josh Jackson is now up to 39% from deep since the All-Star break. He's 19 for 48. Uh, And what I tweeted out today, he's shooting better on wide-open three-point opportunities than Devin Booker, Mikhail Bridges, and Kelly Oubre. The Kelly Oubre one uh, really surprised me. Um, just based on the eye test of what I thought, you know, Ubre being a more efficient shooter uh, on wide open shots. But so for Josh, I mean, at this point, I've talked with him before about his best asset at this point is his motor. He's not a guy who's going to blow you away with his wingspan. He just tries really hard on defense, and that's how it leads to performances like tonight with five blocks and a steal. But if this three-point shooting can be something that stays with him next season, uh, and on top of that, he, he has the motor on defense... The only thing he really has to fix is just his shot selection, quite frankly. I mean, he, if he cuts out the step-back mid-range shots, if he reins it in a little bit in transition so he stops committing so many turnovers, that sounds like a big ask, but that's sort of the only thing stopping him from being an actually good player. I mean, if Josh Jackson has a three-point shot and is a plus defensive player, then I don't know. I mean, he can still maybe be a part of this team's core going forward. And that tra- transition point, I think, is a, is an interesting point because... He loves to attack in transition, but we talked about it on a previous episode. His efficiency isn't there so no. far in his attacking in transition. And if he just cut that out alone, I feel like that would make a massive difference for his game. It's a momentum killer to to get a live ball turnover and the Suns to be running it down on a fast break and Josh Jackson just to go up on a guy and it just bounce off the back of the backboard and they get another rebound and it's going back the other way and Josh Jackson's on the ground not able to help it's four on five and it's an easy bucket and that alone I think that's the type of play that we've talked a lot about Josh Jackson's advanced stats and how dreadful they are and it's plays like that that really affect it because that's like I said a momentum killer on one end but it leads to a mismatch 
on the other end of the floor. So that's the type of play that he has to cut it out. And you talked about it, the the step back mid-range. Nobody likes to see those. And and I will say with Josh Jackson, and I've talked about it before, he wants to shoot. And it, I think that's a good skill for him to have on this team right now because there's just not a lot of guys who want it at the end of the shot clock. And I like that Josh Jackson is willing to do that. He needs to take those shots at the end of the shot clock. Where he needs to cut them out is early in the shot clock when there's really nobody in position to rebound, especially if he can get that out of his game. Yeah, he, he can be really effective. Another guy who's been playing really well lately that I did want to talk about was Dragon Bender. He's starting to put it together in a way that I didn't know would ever happen, and he's still young, but I've been still kind of surprised at how good he's looked. How have you felt about it? Uh, yeah, he's been good. He's uh, bricked all his threes tonight. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know. Overall, the spacing just hasn't been there. But hey, Dragon, if you eliminate those threes, Dragon shot six of seven from the field tonight. He had 10 rebounds, two blocks. He's sort of been a solid rotation piece. And it starts to lead into this conversation of the Suns have four main free agents going into the offseason. Kelly Oubre, um, Rashawn Holmes, Dragon Bender who, of course, we declined the option on, and, and that's why he's a free agent in the first place, and uh, Troy Daniels. Uh, and how many of those guys do you actually want to keep? When we were in the worst stretch of this season a couple of months ago, it sounded like you and I were both on the train of uh, keep Ubre and Holmes, cut the rest of the guys, maximize your cap space. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, do you, do you think Bender and, and Daniels have played well enough down the stretch that those guys are worth a look for a couple million each? Keep in mind that, you know, they'd be taking up roster spots and and some of the money that you want to go out and spend on free agents. That all depends on the situation that we're put in down the line. What players are available, what players are willing to play on the Suns, and what positions can we potentially upgrade on? If we strike out on any big names, there is some value to continuity and growth. We've seen it with Dragon Bender. It's tough to give up on guys too early and you know we've made jokes about Josh Jackson in the past but he's another guy you it's it'd be really scary to give up on Josh Jackson too early and the Suns have a big decision to make on Josh Jackson this summer coming up uh, so there is some value to that and I, I think that maybe we won't have an opportunity to do that if these guys start getting snatched up by other teams quickly Troy Daniels an easy addition to really any team that needs shooting off the bench and then Dragon Bender, I think that he's shown that he can be a legitimate backup power forward. That's probably his future in the league. And if he continues improving or bulking up, maybe even at the center position, because a lot of what he's improved at is not really what you would think of of a typical power forward. It's it's more, he's getting to the rim. He's able to draw some defense under the rim. He's making some nice passes out of the short roll. But more than anything, he's not timid under the basket. And I think that's been the biggest change in his game. He catches it underneath. He's more aware of the fact that he is not only a massively tall human being, he also has insanely long arms. And he's starting to use that length and that size to just put it up over defenders. And that's been the most impressive thing. And the other thing is attacking the basket. He's, he's, he's hitting the dribble and driving towards the rim if he catches it further away from the basket. Those two types of things, yeah, a traditional power forward maybe. But the way power forwards tend to play now in the NBA is out at the three-point line. And we talked about it. He can hit the three. He's shown potential. Last season, was he was a good three-point shooter, I would say, last season. Uh, but but this season it's just you know it's just not there and I think with him that three point shot can come back but you know I don't know free agency is going to be really interesting for this team it's just so flat I'd never expect it to go in and I I just don't know <laughs> the mechanics I don't know if the mechanics are there for him to be a consistently good three point shooter but to your point about 
finishing underneath the basket. It's on a small sample size, but Dragon Bender is shooting 77% from 0 to 3 feet, basically at the rim. This season, he was at 57% in each of the past two seasons. So a 20% jump for him is absolutely huge. And like you were saying, the number of closeouts that he's attacked from the perimeter in the past few weeks alone is probably more than he did in those first two and a half seasons combined. Uh, so just some some subtle yeah. but some big changes from him. And again, just when you think you're out on him, he, he pulls you back in with something. And I don't, I don't really know what his value is going to be on the free agent market. I mean, I assume no team is actually going to give him more than a couple million dollars, basically just a one or two year chance for him to continue to prove that he's uh, deserving of an NBA roster spot. Uh, and I also don't know the other thing that's important is how Dragon feels about Phoenix and if there's any resentment, even if he hasn't made it public, uh, about the fact that the team declined his option in the first place and if he could have the opportunity to go to basically any other team in the league, would he take it? Uh, that's something that we haven't really talked about before. Yeah, the, the Alex Len situa- situation, basically. Yeah. Well, and and actually that's important because Alex Len kind of spurned the Suns today. Yeah, an interesting quote from Alex Lynn. He basically said, I'm not used to having point guards that pass the ball uh, because in Phoenix, all of the guards shot. Um, Yeah, that was an interesting quote from him. But I don't think, here's what I'll say about Bender. I think at the beginning of the season, when the season started, that's probably how he felt. I think that he was likely thinking, this is clearly not working. They didn't pick up my option. I'm kind of ready to move on. I think there was even like a quote that sort of implied that uh, at the beginning of the season. Uh, but at this point, it looks like he's having a lot more fun out there. His teammates are really supporting him. He, you know, he has a coach that he's familiar with and a coach that seems to get along with him and understand his usefulness. He's cut he's cut out the turnovers. That's a big part of Bender as well is he was throwing the ball away because he was so timid around the rim and so timid even wide open at the three-point line he was forcing a lot of passes to these guards and these wings which ended up in a lot of turnovers and and he's cut that out of his game as well so I you know I don't know I really don't know it's hard to read a situation like that but it seems like Dragon Bender is more comfortable in his role and you know just understanding your expectations is huge in the NBA if you understand what's expected of you from your coach uh, then it's a more comfortable situation for a lot of these guys. And, and he seems to understand that now. So, you know, it's really hard to say. It'll be interesting free agency for, for Dragon Bender. And really for the Suns team, watching this team now, there's a lot of tough decisions that they're going to have to make this summer. Absolutely. I, there's not that much money to go around, uh, quite frankly. No. I mean, I want to keep Oubre. I want to keep uh, TJ Warren too. But I think keeping both of those guys and also going out and and trying to attract some veteran help at point guard and a power forward and maybe some shooters. It's, it's a long checklist for Phoenix and it's just going to be tough. Like you said, there, there are going to be some tough decisions. This is why I think the, the package of our pick, assuming it's not one or two and Tyler Johnson is an important one because if the Suns end up using a lot of their cap space to uh, keep and retain the players that are developing in, in this Igor Kokoshkov system, the only way to really upgrade this roster is to start packaging players and picks together. And, uh, you know, Tyler Johnson is just one of those guys that has an inflated salary. And if you can find a team that's willing to get rid of a player, that's something that we'll have to look at later. Maybe we'll have a, a fake trade episode or something coming up in the future. But if you can package that pick and that amount of salary, then you start looking at a lot of players that make a, a little more money and, and players that could legitimately improve this roster 
and you can still retain a lot of the good players. You know, Tyler Johnson is is good, and he's been good for this team, but he's still a backup point guard that's about to make $19 million a year next season. And, you know, it just makes sense to consider trading a guy like that, it, it, assuming a team really needs draft picks or, or is starting to cut bait and, and go the other way, and the Suns have an opportunity to get something good. You know, if we do end up retaining a lot of these guys, trades are going to happen. You, you know, it's it's going to be a little more painful of an off season if that happens. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. But on the other hand, I there's something uh, uncomfortable there about the prospect, even in a weak draft of trading, say, the third or fourth pick for basically a, a cap dump, as you're describing it. I mean, the veteran that you're getting back in return not only would have to have a smaller salary than Tyler Johnson, but they would have to be a good player. They would have to be some sort of impact player for me to be comfortable trading a top five pick. Well, what about Drew Holiday? Yeah, well, Drew, Hol- Drew Holiday, sure, absolutely. Um, the way you, the way you were sort of struck, well, how much does Drew Holiday make? First of all, uh, isn't it seventeen million? Let me okay, check. so that's that's not much of a cap dump compared to Tyler Johnson. Like you said, we we haven't done any research, so we'll have to uh, do like an actual fake trade episode at some point in the future. He's making twenty six million this year. Yes, much more. Okay, so yes, it's twenty six million, <laughs> and he's signed through twenty twenty one. Forget, forget so, we ever said Drew Holiday. You know. It, no, I don't know that it's that insane because if, if the Pelicans end up just completely saying, okay, we're going to tank, then they're going to have to get rid of guys. And the Suns would have to package more than Tyler Johnson. They would have to make Josh a valuable Jackson. trade. Uh, yeah, maybe Josh Jackson, <laughs> if he has Tyler Johnson, and that pick. That's a pretty, I mean, that's a pretty big uh, haul for the Pelicans, but a, a player that would be a massive difference maker here on the Suns, especially compared to what he could do on other teams. Now, Drew Holiday is a great player to fit around uh, Devin Booker and just on this team in general. Uh, but he would make a huge, huge, huge difference on this team because of that massive hole that we have. So that'd be the type of maybe an overpay, depending on how you feel about Drew Holiday, that the Suns might be willing to do because he's locked under contract for another three years going into next season. So that's just an option. That's just something to think about because as we start getting attached to these players and we start seeing them improve, they're going to start costing money. That's that's the whole thing about tanking. Uh, eventually these these rookies start costing a little more you, you can't keep them on rookie contracts forever and uh, you know you got to make some tough decisions going into this we should talk a little bit about Devin Booker though because he was sensational tonight especially because he started the game one for five didn't look very good and really interestingly to me this was kind of the earliest I've seen teams just trapping him just sending two guys at him around every screen uh, so far this season, it's clear that the last three games that he had before this game, you know, 59 points, 50 points, 48 points, and 11 assists, these insane scoring runs that he went on is affecting the defenders. They're, they're starting to look at him a little differently, even sending two guys to, to him off the ball in the post, which is a new thing, I think, for Devin Booker. Really, a, a really amazing game finding guys with those uh, 13 assists. Uh, how'd you feel about Devin Booker tonight? He was great. Uh, as for the Cavs' defensive strategy, let's be honest, it, it was the right move. Uh, it's what any sensible coach would have done. Booker started the game with Okobo, who's been a sub-30% three-point shooter, Bender, who's a sub-30% three-point shooter, Mikhail Bridges, who I think since the All-Star break is a sub-30% three-point shooter. So the the sensible move from any coach is to trap this guy and, and force him to find the open man. Tonight, it paid off for Phoenix. It just makes you think tonight the Suns actually won because they shot like a respectable basketball team at 35 percent. 
But most games since the All-Star break, they've been hovering around that 27 to 28% mark. Uh, and so if they just add a little bit of shooting and they can find uh, these open looks or make these open looks that Devin Booker creates a little bit more consistently, the wins will come. It's really as simple as that. Uh, it's just was a matter of tonight. They actually capitalized on those opportunities. You made that compilation for uh, whatever the last game was. Was it the Grizzlies game? You made yeah. a comp- you made a compilation of, I think, about nine, nine shots, nine wide open shots that Booker created uh, for teammates that were just that were just bricked. Uh, so that's sort of what it's been like over the past few weeks. Yeah, and I couldn't even get them all in there because there wasn't high quality highlights of every single one. And it's not that we should expect our team to make every single open shot that's available, but the Suns are pretty bad at open shots. One of the worst teams at open shots in the NBA. Do you know who the worst team at open wide open shots is, Sam? No clue. It is the Los Angeles Lakers. Oh, should have guessed. Should have guessed. Yeah. yeah. See, you know, it's not it's not rocket surgery. It's you know, you gotta sign <laughs> you gotta sign shooters in free agency. Everyone clowned Magic Johnson for what the Lakers did last offseason and yes. lo and behold it, it it didn't pay off. So the Suns, in addition to finding a reasonable point guard who can handle the ball uh and perform in the backcourt alongside Devin Booker, in addition to finding a power forward who can actually rebound because that's been a huge problem for this team uh all season long, the other thing on the checklist this summer will be shooters. Uh, regardless of what position they come at, they just need more shooters. And that's why I've been a big proponent, actually, of maybe trying to keep Troy Daniels around, too, uh, even if it's just to keep him in his current role where he uh, only comes off the bench every other game, whether whether he likes that or not, uh, just because Troy Daniels, he got bumped uh, and kind of had the wind knocked out of him tonight, and then I think he really struggled the rest of the game. But overall, he's been at about 60% true shooting since the All-Star break. His shot chart looks really, really good. And he's shooting 50% this season on wide open threes, which is just amazing. So he's just, you know, a guy that can come in there and and just knock down open shots, which no one else on this roster can really do right now. Yeah, he's been really impressive. And he's trying some different new stuff sort of off the dribble, which uh, is good for him because he's not great at it yet. But it's so unexpected when he attacks a closeout or hits a step back that uh, defenders are just not ready for it. And you got to, you got to take what they give you. And if they're giving you stuff like that off the dribble, you got to take it. And, and so far is so good for Troy Daniels. And I hope that he does stick around at a reasonable price, but that's one of those guys that you just wouldn't be surprised if there's a team that's already contacted his agent halfway through this season about next season. And he might be lined up to sign a contract somewhere else after this. Do you remember, by the way, we haven't even talked about this. Do you remember when him and Devin Booker basically got in a fight in the Grizzlies yeah. game? Well, I, <laughs> I don't such think... such a bizarre thing to think about now. It is. I don't think they even cared. They probably moved on from it, you know, five minutes later. But I think Suns fans, I remember in our Suns, these Suns fans saying, fuck Troy Daniels after that game, getting <laughs> yeah. all salty about it. And then suddenly Troy Daniels is a Sun. So uh, that, that was a funny thing from a couple years ago. Yeah, I remember when they signed Troy Daniels, uh, there was a report that Ryan McDonough asked Devin Booker if it was okay, <laughs> which is a funny thing to think about now. You know, just going to uh, going to Devin Booker and saying, hey, remember that time that Troy Daniels said you were trash and you only scored in garbage time? Uh, is it okay if I make him your teammate? <laughs> they traded a, a protected second-round pick for Troy Daniels, by the way, which I don't think ever conveyed. So it was a trade that was like, nothing you got him for essentially nothing well because he he is just borderline nba caliber you know as much as i hate to say it he's 
an amazing, amazing shooter, but he's really not good at anything else. According technically as a negative value over replacement player uh, again this season, just because he, he doesn't impact the box score in other ways and he continues to struggle on defense. It's as simple as that. Yeah, he's undersized. He's not super long. I mean, he's got short arms is a better way to put that. Yeah. Uh, so it's difficult for him to be an effective defender. Something I do want to talk about. It's been a run. Devin Booker's run here has inspired a lot of hot take theater uh, on the internet. Uh, a lot of people sounding off on how they feel about him, not just on the internet, really kind of everywhere. Everyone's writing about it. It's on every basketball TV show. I'm sure there's a lot of podcasts talking about it, although I hit that 15-second forward button every time it comes up on a national podcast because I just don't I just don't respect much, much opinions on this. But I do want to talk a little bit about it because it is an interesting phenomenon where Devin Booker had 59 points, 50 points, 48 points, and 11 assists, and all three games were losses. Obviously, we understand the context of these losses. We watched every minute of them. But it really doesn't change how it feels to watch. That 48-point, 11-assist game in a loss to Memphis was especially heartbreaking for me to watch. It's just so difficult to watch him be so successful and just know that the takes are coming. Even this game, which was a win, where Devin Booker only had, in quotes (laughs) only, 25 points, you know that the takes out of this game for a lot of people who do not watch it will be, well, of course the Suns win. Devin Booker didn't shoot every shot. <laughs> yeah. And that's and, and that's the t- kind of take that's coming. I just wanted to quickly talk about it. What, is it, what does it feel like to you? I, I, it really frustrates me and it's really annoying. The takes are one thing, but to actually watch it go down is kind of a, a heartbreaking thing to say. You know, we talked about it in the last episode, get this man some help, but what does it feel like for you to watch this happen time and time again. It's frustrating, but at a certain point, you can't fight stupid. You just, I mean, anyone with a brain can see that Booker's not at fault for the last few losses. Uh, so, you know, I think, obviously, it's been it's been talked about to death already in the Suns blogosphere slash podcast realm. Um, he, ha- he was shooting like 70% true shooting over the last few games. I think the most damning stat is the fact that the Suns had a 114 offensive rating with him on the court in those three games, and they had a 64 offensive rating uh, off the court, which is basically like if you and I suited up for the team and tried to play offense for them, that's how bad we would be. So I don't know. It's yeah, it's it's frustrating, but people who don't watch the games are, are just going to have takes like these, and you just have to kind of admit that that's just going to be the reality of the situation until the Suns start winning games. I can see how it would wear Devin Booker down over the course of a few seasons, though, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, there's a, the other side to that coin is uh, people saying that Devin Booker needs to get the hell out of Phoenix. That's mm-hmm. probably the, the most hurtful of all the takes for me. Uh, one, because I don't want to see him out of Phoenix, and two, because I understand where that take is coming from. I understand that he's playing on a team that's so garbage around him or just has been so badly built. There's some good guys on the team now. I think that's an important point to make. But it's been so badly built around him, and we're going to talk more about that later in this episode, but it's been so badly built around him that uh, he can't be successful even when he's doing things that are damn near super heroic. (laughs) And that's just a sad... I think an important thing to remember for Suns fans, though, is these takes are easy. If a NBA Twitter user, a, a, a Reddit commenter, 
you know, a sports center broadcaster, whoever it is, you know, a writer for a blog says, well, Devin Booker's not a winner because of the way he plays. If he starts winning and all of us Suns fans know that he's playing the same way, he's just surrounded by competent NBA players and defenders and they start winning, all they have to do is say that he changed his game. <laughs> and then they're right on both sides. Oh, well, Devin Booker, he's playing more like a winner now. He could be averaging the exact same uh, points and assists. He could be playing essentially the exact same way. But it's easy to just backtrack on that take and say, well, I was right the whole time. And that's what's going to happen with a lot of these guys who, who are making these hot takes at this point. Just just remember that it's just it's just such an easy target to make because technically he is not a winner right now. And I think you know, that's an important thing to remember as well. He's not winning. So the the accurate statement is he is not a winner. It's not his fault, and I know we want to defend him, but it, that is the truth of the matter. That's that's a really good point that you made, and something that's definitely going to come from the Duncans and the Gollivers and the LaRues of the world uh, whenever Booker does start winning. It, it kind of feels like the flip switching on Kyrie, not only when he was in Cleveland, um, because he was a losing player for the first few seasons of his career too but then also when you know this idea of whether or not he can be a leader and then he got to boston and i think the narrative sort of changed on him especially because there were good defensive pieces around him and suddenly the narrative was that Kyrie changed his game he became a great defensive player uh when i don't really think that's the case um but but similar things happen to superstar players all the time and and it'll happen to booker as well yeah booker if the suns uh, are winning what with him leaving Phoenix, of course, I think it was Mark Spears uh, said today that he would, if he was Booker, he'd give it one more season. And I think really that's the reasonable take. If I'm Devin Booker, I think I can only take one more season of 21 basketball before I would want out. Yeah, I think what what's funny to me and hypocritical to me is a lot of those takes are coming from people that are also frustrated by uh, these players asking out of their contracts so early or asking to be traded so early in their contracts. And, and people are essentially saying that Devin Booker should ask out in the first year of his five-year contract, which would not only be un- unprecedented, it would be completely insane and it would cause a rift in in what this negotiation is like for these guys that that level of player empowerment would have never been seen before and uh, i think people talk about it like it's totally normal for a player to ask out in the first year of his contract no he signed a contract that contract does not even begin until next season if he asked out next season it's not to say that it wouldn't be reasonable depending on how bad the team is but it would still be insane because when you sign a contract, you're signing it under the assumption that you will continue to play there. So, you know, those takes are just kind of insane for me and, and a little bit asinine and I think very frustrating just as a fan, uh, you know, not even about the podcast or anything else, j- just as someone who enjoys to watch Devin Booker play. That one's a little hurtful. I, I don't want to see it anymore. <laughs> Let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a player who just played his last game in Phoenix, in Channing Fry. We'll be right back. What if I told you a team blocked a fan on Twitter and it ruined his life? The next day, I'm, I was taking a shit and then I looked at my phone. I'm just being very honest. And, and then I looked at my phone and I was ready to see if Jamal Crawford or whoever, you know, is DeAndre Ayton upgraded from probable. And then I click and then it says you are blocked from following. Um, a team struggling to win. A fan struggling to cheer for the team struggling to win. 
You know, we ran a sentiment analysis on his tweets before and after the block. I gotta say, there were a lot of red flags after the block. An owner. His son. Coming soon. 30 for 30. Blocking foul. The Chris Hansen Story. Okay, welcome back. Let's talk about a guy who has not played on the Suns in five years, I believe. <laughs> Channing Fry played his last game in Phoenix tonight, played a few minutes, didn't look very good. I think he hit one banked-in three-point shot. But earlier this season, Channing Fry unceremoniously announced that he will be retiring at the end of the season. Channing Fry was a longtime Phoenix Suns player and on was on some of the more exciting teams that played in the last 20 years in the Valley. And it's, it is kind of sad to see him go. He also went to high school here in, in, in Phoenix. And he, I believe is Tempe actually. And then he uh, went to college here in Arizona as well. So this is a guy who spent a lot of his career close to the Phoenix Suns and close to this organization and probably played his best years uh, here in Phoenix. Uh, we talked about that 2009, 2010 season. For those of you who haven't heard it, it's a documentary episode, episode 10 of this podcast where we broke down some pretty insane stats for Channing Fry, where he had probably the biggest turnaround as far as shooting percentages in the history of the NBA, going from, I think, like a 19 or 20% three-point shooter to, to a high 30s on an insane number of attempts. Uh, he was a really fun uh, player to watch, and I think a more important piece to a lot of those Suns teams that he played on uh, than he gets credit for, and that was from 2009 to 2014, uh, do you have any thoughts on Channing Fry, Sam? Just a great guy, a consummate professional. Um, even though Fry hasn't played a lot of minutes this year, uh, he's nominated for the Teammate of the Year award by the NBA. It's, I think, the Twyman Stokes Teammate of the Year award is what they officially call it. There are a dozen nominees, and another nominee uh, is Jared Dudley, I think is important to note. Um, so both of those guys nominated for it just... Yeah, I mean, all respect to Channing Fryman. Also, the fact you didn't even mention that he missed that season with an enlarged heart. Um, and, and he was still able to come back the season after, after Steve Nash was gone and played a very big role on a 48-win team, sort of allowing uh, a lot of spacing for an offense that was powered by Goran Dragic and Eric Bledsoe. So, you know, Channing Fry played sort of through multiple eras of Phoenix Suns basketball and just... All respect to a, a player who was truly ahead of his time. Yeah, I think ahead of his time is actually a great point. He was uh, a player who came in as a stretch shooter that really, that's all he did. <laughs> you know, he didn't have a lot of other offensive uh, possessions. He, we didn't really give him a lot more to do uh, from that. And I, and I actually do want to make a point. The, the Suns in that time, uh, the season that he was out, I believe it was the only season he played on the Suns that was a losing season. And I think that's actually not a coincidence. I think the spacing he provided was so important for the team. We just needed it in order to be successful. He was obviously on that 2009-2010 that team, uh, the last team to make the Suns playoffs. So he was, you know, right now, he's still currently one of the few players left in the NBA that was on that team. Uh, including Jared Dudley, actually, another guy, of course, uh, last Suns playoff team. An important role in that team, he played a lot uh, at power forward. He played a lot at backup center, but also Robin Lopez went down in that season, and he had to play the starting center role. And when he was starting at the center position, 
Uh, that team was insanely good on offense. But also, I think an underrated part of the last team that had a winning record for the Suns, which was the 13-14 team with Goran Dragic and Eric Bledsoe, Channing Fry played a lot of center on that team as well, and I think he was an underrated part of that team. He famously left the team uh, from 13-14 to 14-15. I believe that's when he went to Orlando, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the famous story around that is that he called the Suns and said, uh, you have five minutes to match this offer. If not, I'm signing with Orlando. <laughs> and then the Suns were like, oh, we, uh, we can't do that. And then he left. He was gone. And that next season, the Suns with Isaiah Thomas, Eric Bledsoe, Goran Dragic went 39-43. and 43. And I know it's kind of insane to say that he would make a nine-win difference, but that's the kind of spacing that I think he provides. He was a big part of allowing Eric Bledsoe and Goran Dragic to be Eric Bledsoe and Goran Dragic, to really drive to the rim, to really have space to attack. And I know every team plays like this now, but you know when he first came into the league, it's just not something that a lot of people were used to. Yeah, Dragic in particular, I think, really love to target fry on the perimeter and the two of them love playing the pick and uh the pick and pop excuse me and like you said he played a lot of small ball five but he also just did play a lot of four and when you had Dragic running the point um in 2013 uh or, or 2014 and you had fry on the perimeter coming off a screen and you had a guy like miles Plumley, who you know it sounds kind of funny to say now but at the time was like a good lob catcher for the most part uh, it was kind of like a triple threat there on offense for the Suns, and it just really seemed to work for that particular season. Um, it's a shame the Suns just couldn't make the playoffs that year because uh, that's just such a funny season in hindsight, the way the way that roster came together and, and exceeded preseason expectations. Yeah, I think I, I did want to talk about maybe some memories that we had of Channing Frye, if you can think of any. The first one that I was thinking about earlier is the bizarre, I think it was the 2009-2010 season. It may have been the 2010-2011 season, but there was a game against the Celtics. The Suns always played the Celtics tough. This is in the last really great era of the Celtics with the famous big three, um, Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, and Paul Pierce, where uh, Kevin Garnett was guarding... Channing Fry on the perimeter. Channing Fry went up for a three-point shot, and basically Kevin Garnett punched him in the dick. Shoot <laughs> rushed that, and he got fouled by Garnett. A three-pointer. Now those two get involved. Gortat steps in between. Perkins shoves Gortat. And officials got their work cut out for him right now. His tempers are high. Fry and Garnett still joying at each other. Nate Robinson joying at Gortat. Perkins has to be pushed away. They're trying to clear it away from the crowd here along the sideline. Vince Carter telling Fry to settle down. Now the coaches do a good job of getting their players back. Why is that? It's got to be a foul. He hits him uh, in the stomach area and comes with his foot under him. That's a definite foul. And above. They hit him in the groin. I don't know if that was the intention, but still, you put the foot under the guy. You can't let it. You have to let the shooter land on the court. But you know how many times you can make that type of call because my job is to contest the shot and close out to your body. That's not a contest. He didn't even leave. No, no, I'm talking about. It was such a bizarre thing to happen at the time. They showed the replay maybe like five or six times. And it's just a funny memory to have of Channing Fry. And I think and a funny thing, too, because. Uh, that's the kind of that's the kind of way that he frustrated a lot of defenders at the time because a guy like Kevin Garnett who comes from an old school you know the last one of the last isolation era players 
that was left in the NBA. He played against a lot of guys that like to post up, you know, a different kind of basketball. And then Channing Frye came in and shot, you know, seven or eight threes a game, maybe more, depending on the game. And he really frustrated a guy like Kevin Garnett to the point of literally smacking his penis while he went up for a three-point shot. (laughs) A bizarre thing to remember for Channing Frye, but... That's the way he frustrated a lot of guys when he played for those Suns teams. Yeah, and when you're a forward like that who shoots a lot of threes and spaces the floor, I think you sort of have to fight, particularly if you were in that generation of bigs, the notion of being soft. Um, but so I just remember Fry, like, he, he goes down, he crumples onto the floor for a couple of seconds after that possession, and then he immediately gets up and gets right in Garnett's face <laughs> all ready to fight because, uh, you know, he took offense to it. So that was one memory. The The thing that instantly comes to mind for me is, uh, back when Steve Nash was still on the team, the back-to-back game winners that he had against Indiana and, at the time, the New Jersey Nets. So, try to go for the win here in overtime from Conseco. And it goes to Nash. Zip it over to Fry. Pump fake. Fires. All in for the win! Channing Fry here in overtime. And the Suns win it. That was online the whole way. Channing Fry does a nice job. He really didn't panic when he caught the ball and slug it up there. He had a nice little pump fake, allowed himself to get the defender off the air, and then knocked the shot. Last night. They get it to Channing Fry. Has a good look. Shoots past Humphreys. Absolutely for three. Nice Channing Fry trying to go back to back with game winners. 6.6 seconds to go. Well, that answered our question, Alvin Gentry rolled the big dice and going for the win on the road, at least for at least for the lead on the road. And Channing Fry um, was, if you're talking about game impact, maybe Fry's most memorable moment for Phoenix. Absolutely. You know, and the other thing is Channing Fry, I think he he's really funny. Uh, he's got a great speaking voice. I think that even though he's going to retire, He'll probably be around uh, some NBA circles for a really long time. I think he's got the ability to immediately go into broadcasting. He's a champion now. Uh, he, you know, he he played a long time in the NBA. He played with a lot of interesting players, so he's going to have a lot of interesting insight. And if he wants to go into broadcasting, I'm I'm sure there's a place for him there. If he wants to go into um, team building, if he wants to work for a team, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he ended up on the Phoenix Suns, or, or I, I should say, you know, in maybe in the front office or on the coaching staff, if that's something that he's interested in. Not only is he a U of A guy, who Robert Sarver loves U of A guys, he's also a former teammate of James Jones. So if James Jones stays in a position of power here in Phoenix, and Robert Sarver, who, who has an affinity for not only uh, U of A guys, but former Suns players, it's very possible that Channing Fry could end up back here in Phoenix. And, you know, I wouldn't fight that either. I think he's a great guy. And, and he's, you know, that guys that get the teammate of the year or even are nominated for the team teammate of the year award are probably the type of guys that you want in your front office or coaching staff. Those are chemistry guys. Those are culture guys. You know, I, it wouldn't hurt to have him here in Phoenix in the future. Any other thoughts on Channing Fry? I don't just agree to hundred percent on that. Uh, would not mind having Channing back in Phoenix and, Uh, whatever capacity so one last thing i want to talk about and i don't really have a lot prepared for this i just wanted to start it as a conversation and maybe we can work through how we feel about it over the next few months i guess the season's just about to end and we're gonna have to talk a lot about team building and what i wanted to say is devin booker in the last few games and really since he became healthy this season has proven that he has the ability in my mind uh, he's proven that he has the ability to be a number one star 
on a good team. But the only way to maximize that kind of star is to fully commit. And what the Suns haven't done yet, they've soft committed to building around Devin Booker. They're they're still tanking. They're still finding ways to fill gaps. But they haven't said, okay, Devin Booker's our number one, number one, number one, number one guy. And the only way for us to succeed is to surround him with players that make sense. And what I mean by this is what the Houston Rockets did with James Harden. Uh, you know, James Harden, he's played on a few different teams. Uh, he he was a very good player. He's a very interesting player. But it wasn't really... And actually, Giannis, what, you, what the Milwaukee Bucks did with Giannis actually is another good example. Until they surrounded James Harden and Giannis Antetokounmpo with players that perfectly complement every skill set that they have, they weren't winning at the level that we all b- believed that they were capable of. And the Suns have not done that yet. But I believe that this offseason, it's 100% time for that to happen because he's proven that he could potentially be that level of star to me. Um, and this is just something I've been thinking about for, for, for the last few games just because of the type of things that he's been doing. Uh, what do you think about this? Uh, it's just, yeah, obviously true that he's capable of it. And it's obviously true because you can do a statistical approach with it and look back at the player that James Harden was uh, when the first time the Rockets had a good team with James Harden, which I would argue is 2014, the same season that we were just talking about with Goran Dragic and Eric Bledsoe and Phoenix, the Rockets lost in the first round, but they went 54-28. and 28, And they were a top five offense in the NBA. And James Harden in 2014 was not the James Harden of 2019. He was he just wasn't. In fact, he was very, very close to being the player uh, that Devin Booker is right now. And I can explain that in a couple of ways. On the surface, Harden was averaging 25 points, 5 rebounds, 6 assists, and uh, about 4 turnovers a game. He was shooting 46% from the field, 37% from 3, 87% shooting splits. Those are similar shooting splits to what Devin Booker is putting up right now. And the way his offense was splintered was similar to the way that Devin Booker's offense is currently splintered. He was a better catch-and-shoot guy, in other words, than he was at creating for himself. He shot 39% on catch-and-shoot threes that season. Devin Booker shoots 39% on catch-and-shoot threes this season. Harden shot 34% on pull-up threes that season. Booker shoots 30% on pull-up threes this season, so obviously a little bit worse. Um, and then here's the other big thing. Harden in 2019 creates everything. He totally, totally runs that offense. Harden in 2014, 66% of his field goals were unassisted, which is still a lot. But this season, Booker, 64% of his field goals are unassisted. Very similar. 2014, James Harden was much more reliant in the mid-range. Devin Booker today, very reliant on mid-range scoring, uh, or or at least not too overly reliant on three-point shooting. So I think the fact that the Rockets were able to build a 55-win team around James Harden, who in 2014 was essentially the player that Devin Booker is today, uh, is just evidence that the Suns can do the same thing. And with the right players, uh, many of whom are have archetypes that existed on that 2014 Rockets team, the Suns should be able to make a similar leap uh, in the next couple of years. That was a, some really great analysis there. Another thing, too, is the biggest leap that he made uh, that James Harden made was between his 22-year-old and 23-year-old season. So Devin Booker's about to start his season at 23 years old. And when James Harden was 22 years old, the season he was 22 years old, he was averaging six free throws a game. When James Harden in the 12-13 season was 23 years old, that went from six to 10.2 free throws a game. 
And this is the kind of leap that you could see Devin Booker making. You can see it happening right now. His ability to get fouled just from his first step alone is insane. And if he continues what he's doing in the post, that's a great way to get fouled as well. Any double team that throws at him, he just has to turn into it. And it's an easy foul. So this is the kind of leap that he can make. But what I want to talk about is maybe maybe we don't have to name some names yet. But let's talk about the type of player that you would have to put around Devin Booker to build around him as a star. So when you're building around a player like this, like you do with Giannis, like you do with James Harden, you want to get players that complement their best strengths but also make up for their worst weaknesses. And what I mean by that is when you have James Harden, who's a very similar player, so likely a lot of this archetype will just be players like the Houston Rockets, but when you have James Harden, you want to surround him with people who can shoot, but also people who can make up for his defense. So he has guys like PJ Tucker. He has a rim runner like Clint Capella. He has, uh, you know, Chris Paul, of course, is another great point guard defender, another guy who can get him easy shots off the dribble if James Harden is getting trapped or double teamed. And if you have Giannis, you have to surround him with shooters because Giannis is a terrible shooter. So that's why they've put so many amazing shooters uh, on that team. It allows him to drive to the rim and be the Giannis that he wants to be. And it, it makes up for the fact that he's not a guy who can make consistent three-point shooting. So when we look at Devin Booker, we want to talk about what type of players complement his best skill set and make up for his worst. So first of all, his weakness. So Devin Booker's biggest weakness, obviously, is defense. So we got to talk about defense. He needs guys that can be great defenders around him, but Primarily, he needs a really good rim protector, and this is why a lot of people are a little bit worried about um, DeAndre Ayton because that's not his number one skill. DeAndre Ayton is a great match for him offensively. He's a rim runner. He sets massive screens, and he can create for himself if Devin Booker is completely trapped. He also has the ability of making quick reads off the ball if there's a high trap and a third guy comes at DeAndre Ayton. So it's a good match for him offensively, not the best match for him defensively, but I think that the upside for his offense is high enough that that shouldn't matter, right? Yeah, it doesn't. Well, it does matter, actually. Ayton needs to get better on defense if the Suns want to be a championship contender. I believe that they could be a very, very good team, a 50-plus win team with two all-offense, no-defense players. But the way that we sort of ignore defense for Devin Booker, like personally, I just don't believe that offense and defense are equal parts of the game for shooting guards in the way that we really need to talk about it as if they're equal parts of the game for a guy like Devin Booker. Marcus Smart, at his absolute, absolute best, is not impacting a game in the same way as a game where Devin Booker scores 50 points. He's just not. Um, but the same is not the same thing is not true for centers. Uh, the way that a guy like Rudy Gobert or Clint Capella or Steven Adams impact the game from the center position as rim protectors is just so crucial that Aiton really needs to, to learn to do that. And there are guys that you can bring in. First of all, you can have a good backup center like Rashawn Holmes. I think that's the Suns are off to a great start there uh, to really sort of make up for his weaknesses. And the other thing you can do is you can target power forwards to bring in and mitigate uh, Aiton's weaknesses by bringing in some guys who can uh, – protect the rim for the weak side really well that's why prospects like zion (laughs) that's why prospects like zion williamson or brandon clark uh, are really appealing that's why i've talked about guys on the free agent market even if they're lower budget options like noah vonley in the past um but overall ayton just needs to improve it's on him if the suns want to be winning a championship anytime soon the other position that i want to talk about and we don't have to talk about guys names right now but the the other obvious hole that we have is point guard we've talked about point guard all season but 
I've been thinking a lot about this and I'm trying to figure out what is the perfect archetypal point guard next to Devin Booker if we're just trying to complement his strengths and and make up for his weaknesses. Let me list three things for you and tell me if you think this would be the perfect point guard or not. What if I told you that I could offer you a point guard who is a veteran, has a 4.0 assist to turnover ratio, a guy who can really get in there and facilitate, maybe scoring isn't his primary mode. He plays some defense. He's he's maybe not the biggest lockdown defender, but he gets a steal and a half per game. It definitely plays the passing lanes, plays plays a good amount of defense, uh, and and just is a good shooter, close to 60% true shooting. Would you be interested in targeting a point guard like that to be your guy next to Devin Booker? Say, you know, not necessarily a star player, but a stopgap option, much in the way that Patrick Beverly played next to James Harden in those early Houston years. Well, I'll, I'll say this, that all of those things mean that they're a much better point guard than anything that's on the Suns right now. So absolutely, I'm all in on that. But, well, first of all, we can we can talk about this before I sort of critique it. Who who are you talking about? What, what player? That player is Darren Collison. And he will, I thought so. He will be I had a, a feeling. This summer, and is a guy who started and played some really, really good basketball for a playoff team in Indiana that lost its best player in Victor Oladipo. Uh, we, we've had the conversation about Ricky Rubio in the past, but I'm, I'm starting to go all in on the Collison train, um, especially like even if the Suns bring in John ja Morant uh, through the draft, I still think they should probably target a veteran point guard of some sort in free agency just to help bring Ja along. Like if they're really serious about winning games next year, then just a guy like Collison checks all the boxes for that. But but anyway, say what you're going to say. Well, here's here's what I was going to say. And, and this this is, I think, what's important. And it's not necessarily something that has to come from uh, the the point guard position, but if the Suns become too predictable, regardless of the type of players that are around Devin Booker, we need another player that's able to break guys down off the dribble and create for themselves. Now that could be Kelly Oubre. Mm-hmm. Right now, that's probably our best option as far as um, a secondary option to Devin Booker. But ideally, a, a ideal situation is as a similar one, of course, to what James Harden has, where he has Chris Paul. If he cannot do it, and it, this isn't the same Chris Paul that we're used to, right? Maybe Chris Paul now is a little closer to Darren Collison than, than he used to be. Uh, but, you know, it, it is an option of a guy who can create his own shot. And this is the the hardest part because if you just say, well, maybe just surround him with a bunch of defenders who can shoot. First of all, that's one of the hardest things to find in the NBA. That's why the Bucks are so good. That's why the Warriors are so good. That's why the Rockets are so good. They have a bunch of guys who play defense and are capable of shooting threes. It's it's difficult to find. But if you just do that, even if you did just do that, we would be good, but you still need a secondary guy that's capable of breaking guys down and, and really finding open guys or creating a shot for themselves. Probably the creating a shot for themselves being the most important thing. And maybe this is where you say, okay, maybe it could be Kelly Oubre or maybe it could be Josh Jackson if he continues to improve uh, like he is. But those are obviously, to me, not guarantees. And, and, and really, when we're talking about building around Devin Booker, we're talking about building a perennial playoff contender. And I'm not sure that any of those guys are, are, are good enough to do that for Josh Jackson or for Devin Booker. So I just wonder if that needs to come from the point guard position since traditionally it does. So I don't know. Maybe it did, John Morant could be that guy. It's just it's just a thought that's been coming to my mind. I don't know who these guys are, but I think this is something we need to think I mean, about. I don't think it needs to come at the point guard position. This may be an old-fashioned way of thinking about it, but 
didn't come at the point guard position for any of Jordan's playoff runs. It didn't come at the point guard position for any of Kobe and Shaq's playoff runs or any of Kobe's playoff runs in general. Uh, the point guard position was not yeah. not a primary position. And, and the NBA is played differently nowadays, uh, especially with all the elite point guards shooting threes that there are. But I definitely think a guy like Kelly Oubre, TJ Warren, Josh Jackson theoretically could be that secondary player. Maybe not particularly those guys, uh, but just someone at the small forward position can do that. For sure. I don't think I, I think, Yeah, maybe RJ Barrett. <laughs> or RJ Barrett. You know, it's funny. We were talking about Josh at the very beginning of this episode, and the more we were talking about him and his shot selection, it just the similarities. You were talking to Richard a couple weeks ago in our episode about scary similarities between Josh Jackson and RJ Barrett, and I continue to see those. Um mm-hmm. but yeah, RJ theoretically is is a guy that could be that uh, other guy as well. So I think it's totally possible to plug in just an okay point guard like Darren Collison and still be an elite team. Yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, and and to RJ's defense, uh, his actual physical profile is a little bit different than uh, Josh Jackson. He's he's longer, and and Josh Jackson with a little bit of length would be a much better defender. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of potential there for RJ Barrett, but a lot of you know his vision, his but his shot selection being iffy, um, the three-point stroke being mm, mediocre I guess is a good way to put it not a guarantee I would say those are all things I think we saw out of Josh Jackson and the ability to dominate in college as we've seen is is very different than coming into the NBA and being successful right away I really I don't have any doubt that RJ Barrett will be a good NBA player I do have doubts that Josh Jackson will, but I didn't when he was drafted, so (laughs) I'm not really sure uh, at this point. But the one thing I'll say about R.J. Barrett, if we do draft him, if we want to be good next year, it's probably going to be at the expense of his minutes. He's not going to be a guy that plays 35 minutes a game on a good team in his rookie year. He's going to need time to develop properly. Uh, And so if that does end up being the guy that we end up with, it's probably probably going to be not a great situation as far as a ton of wins but you know who knows who knows this team still needs that good players. thing could just so easily turn into a shit show because the suns are not going to be a good team if they're giving any of those guys rj barrett uh jared culver deandre hunter if they take any of those wings and and have to just add one more to the clusterfuck pile next season they're they're not going to be a good team but if they take rj barrett you were tweeting out today i could easily see them take rj barrett based on uh, Robert Sarver taking a phone call from Steve Nash, who, you know, if our listeners don't know, Steve Nash's uh, godson is R.J. Barrett. So, you know, that sort of thing could could totally happen. But how do you balance that with the Suns trying to actually compete for wins next year and convince Devin Booker to stick around? Uh, I'm just not quite sure how it's going to work out. It's only a 27% chance of yeah. Zion or Ja, but we, we, we really, we really, really need Zion or Ja this offseason. I know that... We probably should. Or Brandon Clark. I think Brandon Clark could be easily be on a winning team next year. For yeah, the record, exactly. <laughs> of I all the players want, that we I, talked about, he he's, he's I don't older. I want to use a third overall pick on Brandon Clark, but it's just at, there's no other player that you could plug into this team after Zion or Ja who actually makes them better from day one. Clark might. He might be the only other guy in the top ten or fifteen who really does that. And maybe we end with this, but just picture Zion on this team, yeah. right? <laughs> All these fears go it's away. Really, they just melt away. For people who think that Zion is somehow not a good fit on this team, first of all, you are absolutely insane. And second of all, I think this is more about expectations. So many people are watching more of Zion in this tournament than they were 
for the rest of the season. Now, I've actually watched a ton of Zion Williamson play and a ton of R.J. Barrett uh, play because that Duke team, first of all, they're on TV a lot, uh, but we have the potential of that top pick. So I followed them very closely. A lot of people did not follow them very closely, and all they've heard is that Zion Williamson is the next LeBron James, and they see him in this tournament, and they expect so much out of him that they're disappointed if he doesn't absolutely dominate. Um, counter to that, he is absolutely dominating. <laughs> he, he's been insane in this tournament, and what he does is he fills, he fills so many gaps on this team. He, he helps our weak side defense. He helps our rim protection. He can create for himself off the dribble. He's a good passer. He's excellent in transition. He's a massive body. He, he's athletic as all hell. I mean, he's really a perfect fit on this team, and it would be remarkable to watch him, Aiton, and Devin Booker uh, grow old together and and really hopefully play together for the rest of their careers because that could be the type of team you, you keep those three guys together for their career that could be the type of team that that goes to the playoffs for ten years together. Absolutely, it, it would just instantly propel to um, propel the Suns to another level. He's also perfect yin and yang though with other players like Trey Young. Like if he ends up in Atlanta, that would be really scary. I have no idea how they would yeah. make it work with John Collins. Because John Collins is a traffic cone on defense, and and you can't play him at the five, and John Collins is having a, a really good season. So I I just don't quite know how you would make that work. But just all of Trey Young's strengths. I mean, Trey Young's shooting fixes Zion's lack of shooting, and Zion's defense fixes Trey's lack of defense. That those two would just be perfect to kind of make the Eastern Conference scary again. Yes, I mean it's just. Oh man, it would just be great. I, I, we should probably stop talking about it because the chances are so small at this point. I don't even want to get my hopes up, not to mention anyone who's listening to this. Um, but we'll be able to watch that. Uh, you know, they're out of the tournament now, so so no more Zion, no more Jaw, um, Jared Culver's no more RJ Barrett. No. So Texas, yeah, really the only guy left. Texas Tech, that's the only top top prospect uh, left in the Final Four. So if you're interested in watching the Final Four, watch those Texas Tech games. So we only have two more episodes uh, that are coinciding with this season. What are we going to talk about after this season, Sam? Absolutely no clue. No clue. <laughs> but don't worry. Stick around anyway. We'll, we'll find we'll find some bullshit to talk about. We always do. Yes. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. And uh, stay subscribed to this podcast. Rate, review us. New episodes soon. Now the door. You just wrapped up another episode of The Timeline. I love this podcast. And if you're like me, you want as much Suns content as possible. That's why I listen to The Timeline every week. So if you want to go ahead and hear some more Phoenix Suns content, go ahead and listen to The Solar Panel, a Phoenix Suns show. We are available on Spotify, on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play. Anywhere that you listen to podcasts, go ahead and check out The Solar Panel, a Phoenix Suns show. Okay, Paris.
Parachutes ready. Boy, the things I go through to get on all on rates as slow as 0.99% APR for 60 months on new vehicles with PenFed. You are aware that you don't have to be a military member to save hundreds on your auto loan, aren't you? Anyone can join PenFed. As someone terrified of heights, I probably should have looked into that. Probably. Drop me off at the shore. PenFed Credit Union. Visit PenFed.org slash autos or call 1-800-247-5626. Advertised rates available through the PenFed car buying service. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA.